Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, this is Peter Truckill. I write every week in The New European about the languages of Europe and about language in Europe generally. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to The New European Podcast with me, Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of The New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Questions, questions. If the Prime Minister married Nadine Doris, would he take her surname? Doris Doris? Does Rishi Sunak call the Lone Ranger the Rebate Ranger? Is it true that Speaker Lindsay Hoyle refuses to watch the Jim Carrey movie Liar Liar until it's retitled Inadvertent Misleader, Inadvertent Misleader? Can you try the Graham Brady excuse with electricity bills? Yes, I did get your letter demanding payment, but I'm going to do nothing until I collect 53 more of them. What would Alanis Morissette call the fact that we need 54 MPs to call out Boris Johnson for turning Downing Street into Studio 54? And is the news about heat and charges, interest rates and inflation now all so bad and the outlook so bleak that the next letter of no confidence in Boris Johnson will come from Boris Johnson himself? All these questions and more may be answered in the next few minutes on the New European podcast, or you know, maybe not. But first, my brilliant colleagues Suna Erdem and Claire Nihanaila have put together a superb piece of journalism in this week's print edition of the New European, and it's accompanied by a very special three-part pop-up podcast series. Here is a trailer. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. 
the new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or to download in the same new European feed you found this episode. And if you want to support us do more brilliant journalism like this, then you can subscribe the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Coming up on the New European podcast, the author and journalist Andre Kirchhoff on life in Ukraine under the shadow of war. But first, the Winter Olympics begins this week at a time when Boris Johnson is heading downhill fast. Resignation of his head of policy, Munir Remers, has just been announced as I'm recording this. But what other events would be in a political Olympics? And who'd be in them? New European podcast listener Claire Angel says the Winter Olympic sport that would suit many politicians would be skeleton, skeleton in the cupboard. Dan Price says skating around the question. Uh, Colin Clark says Nadine Doris has invented a new form of curling. It's toe curling, toe curling embarrassment. And a few Summer Olympic sports got a shout out. Bob Painter points out that in the Partygate Olympics, Allegra Stratton is the only one so far who's qualified for the high jump. Daniel Leithley, friend of the podcast, says that Daniel uh, Kaczynski MP could uh, open up the pole vault. It's not an event, it's the bank vault where Daniel keeps the money, uh, the £22,000 he spent on Polish language lessons, despite being a speaker of the Polish language and indeed being Polish. Sue Mitchell uh, has a few more Olympic sports for politicians. Rowing, it's rowing back on manifesto commitment. Shooting, shooting yourself in the foot. And wrestling, uh, wrestling with your own conscience, as many Tory MPs are doing now, if indeed they have consciences. Uh, Richard Luck, friend of the podcast, uh, he wraps it up. He says the Olympic sport for politicians is Greco-Roman bullshitting. And I think we know uh, which person in number 10 is an expert in that. Now, on the New European podcast, a celebrated Ukrainian author who's written 19 books, including the best-selling Death and the Penguin. He sold 75,000 of his own books himself um, after the fall of communism temporarily ended traditional book publishing in the former Soviet states. This week, he's written for the New European about the surreal atmosphere in Kiev as the shadow of Vladimir Putin looms. Welcome to the podcast, Andrei Kirchhoff. Uh, Andrei, we see dispatches from Ukraine on our screens every day now, and we've graciously sent you some of our very worst politicians to help out. But what is life like in, in Kiev for ordinary people right now? What's the atmosphere like? And, uh, and uh, now probably the time is more difficult than usual. But uh, since uh, there are conflicting messages from the state, from the America, from America and from Ukrainian government, because Americans uh, say or stopped saying, but we're saying that the war is imminent. Uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky was saying that uh, there is no more true Russian troops than before and everything is as usual. So, so people actually uh, probably uh, naturally don't trust uh, neither America nor Zelensky. And they are uh, psychologically ready for the war. 
although according to the polls, 60% of people don't believe the real war is possible and 40% are, well, I mean, ready or believe that the war is there, the war is coming. But, but generally, uh, the cafes are full. The people, many people are joining the courses of territorial defense. There are new rules, more relaxed regarding uh, hunting uh, rifles. And there are courses of uh, uh, medical help, which are attended by many uh, girls and women, including actually uh, my friend who is a refugee, journalist and refugee from Donbass, uh, uh, Katerina. Katerina Kazimirova. So, 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 I mean, uh, one can say that uh, it's okay. I mean, we will see what uh, happens next. But, uh, but generally, I mean, there is no outcry. There is no cry for help except from the government to the West. But mm. ordinary people are living as they used to live. And they say that actually we have already war with Russia for eight years. And yeah. this is just a new phase, new phase of this war. And, and you paint a slightly surreal picture in this piece um, that, that you've written for the, the New European about you, there, there are bomb shelters being built, but also people are going on holiday. And, you, I mean, you're out of the country now. You're, you're on, a, on a book tour. Uh, I'm in Paris. I, I have my plans ready until October, November, with lots of uh, travels uh, outside Ukraine. I, I'm, I'm going to spend uh, July and August in Marseille in France. Uh, I have book launches uh, in uh, Montpellier and in Saint Malo in Bretagne. Uh, I'm coming actually to London in the end of March. On the 20th, 25th of March, I have a big event in Conduit. I don't know this venue, but it is organized by the Frontline Club. Right. So, so, so I mean, I'm I'm planning my life as usual. It yeah. can be interrupted. I'm ready that it can be interrupted. It was interrupted very much by uh, COVID, by the vi- virus. So, I mean, uh, that's true. I mean, we, we live uh, in Ukraine between virus and the war, and you never know what is worse. Yes. But, I mean, we know virus very well. We learned how to live with the virus. We learned how to live with the war in Donbass. Mm. Uh, but we, we, we don't know how to live with the bigger war. Yes. I mean, you, you, in, in the piece that you've written, you, you do talk about how people who are expecting conflicts are expecting very different kind of conflict to, to you know the things that we're used to seeing from Iraq or Afghanistan what are people expecting and, and what sort of hints are there from what happened in Georgia in 2008 and, and in Crimea in, in 2014 well I mean the Georgian example is quite important because uh, uh, the war Russia had in Georgia was a low budget war they reached uh, Tsinval with a limited number of tanks and uh, cannons, etc. And then they just uh, demanded capitulation and uh, signing of some kind of documents. Uh, or I, I don't remember the, the uh, bureaucratic end of this war. But, I mean, they just entered and they stayed until they, they got Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia or secured these two regions. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, it can be repeated if they take over Chernigiv and Sumy, two cities which are not very big, uh, which are not far away from a Russian border. Uh, so they can take these two or one of them and uh, demand from Kyiv capitulation or legal acceptance of annexation of Crimea 
or change of the international and inner politics or replacement of the president in new elections. So, I mean, they can demand whatever they want because, I mean, they are not happy with Ukraine going towards Europe. They want to have total control of Ukraine because historically they think, Putin thinks that Ukraine belongs to Russia. Although my point of view is that historically Russia belongs to Ukraine because Kyiv Kyiv is 1,500 years old and Ukraine is only under 900 years old. And you, uh, Kyiv, uh, uh, in fact, actually, Kyiv built Moscow. Uh, Kyiv's prince, uh, Count uh, Yuri Dolgoruki, uh, actually created Moscow. I, I mean, I don't know for what reason, uh, because, I mean, Kyiv and Rus uh, was a different thing. It was not today's Russia. Hmm. But anyway, uh, Ukraine is older, is more ancient, and... Uh, either we talk about territory or about the state of Ukraine, uh, I mean, these uh, lands which were ruled by Cossacks, Hetmans, etc., they were always more democratic and more anarchistic than Russian Empire. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that, the heart of the Ukrainian mentality being a matrix of anarchy and individualism, and then you talk about well, about the Russian mentality sort of cleaving to to a monarchy, even though they, they sometimes end up killing their, their yeah. czars. Well, I, I, I still believe this is the true explanation of the difference between two mentalities. So, I mean, when Putin says that actually Ukrainians and Russians are the same, they are not the same. They are the opposite ones. Do you, are there some Ukrainians who, who do feel part that their destiny belongs with, with Russia or is a part of Russia, do you think? Well, I mean, people in Donbass, people in Crimea, I mean, these are two different stories. But generally, the people living on the borders, they are always uh, interested uh, what is happening just around the corner. And in fact, uh, uh, Ukrainian politicians never cared about uh, inner politics, about integration of different regions into one Ukrainian nation. So what happened that... Uh, Donbass and Crimea and part of Bessarabia, Odessa region, were never covered by Ukrainian information space and Ukrainian cultural space. The people in Donbass were watching always Russian TV. And one of the most favorite TV channels for them was the TV channel Nostalgie, which was showing and is still showing only Soviet old films. And, and and this is the I mean this is also one of the reasons why I mean these people are still Soviet and they still many of them have this Soviet Russian collective mentality. For uh, Crimea, it's a different story because uh, there uh, Russia was financially supporting really monarchies monarchism among the ordinary poor and not very educated people because I mean they were telling them this is the peninsula which used to belong to Romanov's dynasty. Hmm. There are lots of palaces of uh, counts and of Tsar, uh, of Nikolai II, etc. And Catherine the Great loved Crimea. So, I mean, the main souvenirs of uh, uh, Crimea even today will be the albums, photo albums of kings' palaces, the biographies of different Russian kings, Tsars, and different stories about how this count started wine production in Massandra or how that count Galitsyn started producing uh, Russian uh, champagne in Novi Svet. I mean, you, you write here that, that the, the current threat of war from Russia only means that the Kremlin has realised it is finally using, losing Ukraine. Just explain, just explain that, how, how the, the Kremlin has realised it is losing Ukraine. 
Well, what was happening? I mean, in the Soviet time, there was there were several campaigns of Russification, of uh, replacing Ukrainian uh, language in Ukraine with the Russian language, and actually accusing the Ukrainian speakers of being nationalists because they were speaking mother tongue, which was not welcome. And what is happening in the last 30 years, the Ukrainian language, together with Ukrainian mentalities, pushing uh, back to the East uh, Russian language. So, 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 I mean, the border between two mentalities uh, in uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, would cut uh, Ukraine in two parts. And after that, actually, the border was moving towards Russian-Ukrainian border. And if there were no war, in 20, 30 years' time, the border between two countries would finally coincide co- coincide with the border between two mentalities, collective and individualist. And that would be the end for Russia. After that, there would be no reason to interfere in Ukrainian affairs. So I, I think actually people in Kremlin realize that they either should act now or they should forget Ukraine. And how can you forget Ukraine if you are a proper Russian and mm-hmm. uh, uh, a proper monarchist and you love Russian Empire until 1917. You cannot forget Ukraine. You cannot live without Ukraine because, I mean, Ukraine... I mean, Ukrainians were called in Russia little Russians. Malarosi. And uh, very often you, uh, Russian politicians are still using this word. So for them, Ukrainians are little brothers of big Russians. And, yeah. uh, I mean, and, and this... Uh, uh, I would say, a sort of arrogance uh, with a condescending attitude and with some kind of kind attitude as towards pets is uh, to read in, in, in many articles uh, and to hear in many speeches of uh, Russian leaders and politicians. So, so, I mean, if the worst does happen, are you expecting boots on the ground or are you expecting the kind of thing an extension of the kind of thing that we saw early in january cyber attacks and then there is you know some sort of you know there's kind of disinformation going on there's, there's kind of blackmail there's intimidation what 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 are you expecting i mean uh, russian secret service fsb and gru i mean they are very professional i mean they are people uh, with the KGB school behind their sh- shoulders. I mean, they are very uh, talented in creating uh, new problems for neighbors. So I would I would expect everything, a combined effort, hybrid war with uh, hackers' attacks, with economical pressure. I mean, I can imagine that actually uh, since uh, Belarus uh, stopped being an independent country, and uh, Lukashenko is doing what he's, he's probably told from the Kremlin, he can attack, actually, Ukraine and then ask Russia for help because he's accusing Ukraine every day of either planning attack or a drone, military drone flying over uh, Belarusian territory or something else, or uh, that uh, Ukrainian nationalists are smuggling uh, weapons to Belarusian protesters. So, I mean... Uh, as a Ukrainian, I mean, I am ready to any kind of uh, problems because I mean, it's it's clear that uh, the case is not closed. We mm-hmm. are we are still the target, and I mean, if we are still the target, it means that actually this war will echo in other countries in Europe very quickly. Yes, I mean, 
with that in mind, are you are you surprised by Germany's apparent disinterest in all of this? I think they've five five thousand helmets that that they've offered you, while other people are are offering, um, you know, defensive weapons and uh, and the like. Well, I, I, I'm surprised, but at the same time, I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I, I'm surprised that they are so open about their lack of desire to yes. to be part of European Union. I mean, the uh, in fact, actually, what Putin always wanted, he wanted to show that European Union doesn't exist. And uh, with the German stand, it shows that actually there is no solid one uh, mutual common opinion of European Union as a an organization that unites so many nations in Europe. So, I mean, uh, every country has different uh, approach to Ukrainian crisis. Every country has different ideas. Prime Minister of Hungary is prepared, actually, to go uh, to Kremlin uh, in exchange for cheaper gas. Merkel was happy, actually, to uh, allow Russians to build uh, North, uh, Northern Stream, North, North, North Stream uh, gas line. Etc. And of course, they, they they want to trade. They don't want to to fight. I mean, the same I can uh, say uh, about France. When Russian Parliament voted uh, and outlawed, in fact, actually, uh, the possibility of French uh, champagne producers to sh- sell their champagne in Russia as champagne, uh, French champagne producers suddenly. Uh, agreed to change etiquettes and to call uh, their champagne sparkling wine for Russian market. And I remember before how they were fighting international legal battles to ban Ukraine from using the word champagne on their Crimean champagne or Artemovsk champagne, which is uh, champagne which was produced and still produced in Donbass on the Ukrainian side of the front line. Things, Things have progressed to these kind of stages before, you know, settlements are eventually reached. Um, what kind of settlement do you think would appease Putin? And, what, and then what would that mean for, for the people of Kiev and the people of Ukraine and, and people like you who are able to now travel out of the country at will? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, the issue of NATO is an artificial uh, issue because, I mean, Russians do understand that actually NATO is not ready to accept Ukraine in the nearest future, maybe in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years. So, I mean, these demands to have written guarantees that Ukraine will never join uh, NATO is just a a funny pretext uh, for the conflict. I mean, uh, Putin achieved what he wanted. He has all the attention now of the world on Russia and on Russian behavior. And people in the uh, world are again uh, afraid of uh, Russia. I mean, I remember that actually Lavrov once said that this is good when uh, Europe is afraid of uh, Russia. So, I mean, they want everybody to be afraid of Russia. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, if uh, European Union wants to please Putin, they should show that they're afraid of Russia. Mm. But but generally, I mean, what can come uh, Putin down it's difficult to say because uh, uh, he is not, uh, in fact, looking for written guarantees or anything else. He wanted the world to be afraid of Russia. 
And uh, if needed, he is ready probably to unite with China so that the world would be afraid of China and Russia together. And I wanted to, to just end with a, with a couple of things about your work. Death and the Penguin, which I think is probably your, your best known book here. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that, I mean, that starts with the premise of this Kiev Zoo and then there's animals being given away to, to people who can support an animal and the penguin is given away. Is, is that, was that a flight of imagination or is that something that you can see happening in a, in a few weeks' time? Uh, it won't repeat. I mean, the, 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 this is a practic- almost a re- real situation in this rom- uh, novel, uh, which took place in 1990s after right. the collapse of the Soviet Union. The animals were not given uh, away to people who could feed them, but uh, some animals were sent back or sent to German zoos in order to get rid uh, of uh, economical burden of feeding them. And uh, one zoo in Kharkiv in the city 30 kilometers away from Russia with one million of inhabitants, this zoo uh, started a small private business and they were selling snakes uh, pythons and cobras to new rich people trying to create a fashion and telling them that actually it will deter the burglars and bandits. So, so I mean, uh, uh, you don't need a lot of imagination uh, when you have the reality like this uh, to write a novel. Yes. And, and uh, something else from that time which, which I, I know about you is that you – well, in, in what circumstance you ended up with seventy-five thousand of your own books, and and how did that come about? And then and what happened next? Well, what happened actually in nineteen ninety-two? Some poets were selling their uh, collections of poetry on Andreevsky's Pusk, the most famous street in Kiev, beautiful street which goes from the aristocratic upper town to Jewish district Podil. And somebody asked me, why don't I publish my own books? And I talked to my friends who were first business people in uh, in Ukraine, and they lent me fifteen or $16,000. I don't remember. I bought six tons of paper. And uh, I bought six tons of paper in Kazakhstan, and then I needed to transport it to Kiev. And this is a long story. I mean, I don't want to take too much time, but in the end, I printed 25,000 copies of the philosophical novel, which is finally published also in English, The Bigford Fuse, and 50,000 copies of a book for children, The Adventures of Baby Vacuum Cleaner Gosha. And uh, in one year, with lots of difficulties, lots of adventures, and a couple of almost uh, heart attacks, I managed to sell uh, all of these books, except the books which were stolen from me by different companies. And I returned the money and I earned $700 to buy my first computer. So, I mean, I I could tell you more, but I don't want to to talk too much about this. Well, we'll end it. We'll end it there. But thank you so much, uh, Andre. We've got everything crossed for you. We've got everything crossed for Ukraine. To read Andre Kirchhoff's piece from Kiev, pick up a copy of the current issue of The New European, uh, or you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians, things that annoy me generally. Let's start with Anne Widdicombe Corner. Alack, Igad Harumph, she once uh, wrote. In her terrible column in the Terrible Daily Express, the terrible Anne Widdicombe um, is on, uh, uh, she's back to Alack, Igad Harumph, because she writes, forsooth, 
Methinks I must be a square. Uh, she writes that about um, some new technology that is baffling her. Um, also, Anne Whittacombe writes uh, elsewhere in the column, she writes, we've got one of the most free countries and the fastest growing economies in the world, thanks mainly to Boris. But instead of taking advantage of that happy position, we have a PM who has to perpetually apologise and large sections of the press fixated on the possibility of his fall. Is it not time that we all grew up? To which I can only say, alack, egad harumph, forsooth, methinks Anne Whittaker must be a complete idiot. Michael Gove is in the Hall of Shame. His levelling up plan has been ridiculed because it features large sections that seem to be cut and pasted out of Wikipedia, including an amazing, fascinating section about Constantinople, which it says was the capital of the Roman Byzantine Empire from 330 to 1204 and 1261 to 1453. It was capital of the Latin Empire from 1204 to 1261 and the Ottoman Empire from 1453 to 1922. Amazing. The report also features a diagram of the world's largest cities since 7000 BC. Absolutely essential reading there when you're trying to work out how much funding to allocate to Rotherham. It's just a shame that Michael Gove didn't cut and paste from Wikipedia's entry for Nadine Doris, which for a few hours this week read in part, Nadine is as thick as a Boxing Day turd. Joining Michael Gove's levelling up report in the Hall of Shame is the government's benefits of Brexit report. Among the policies it highlighted were establishing free ports, which we already had established between 1984 and 2012 years in which we had seven free ports, but we shut them down because they're useless and simply move money from one bit of a country, the country to another. But we did them while we were in the EU. The report also highlighted the role of Brexit in reducing single-use plastic bags. And of course, the charge for plastic bags in shops was introduced in the UK in 2015, while we were still a member of the EU. Meanwhile, the biggest and squelchiest benefit of Brexit this week came when members of the Select Committee on Transport went on a fact-finding mission to assess the lack of parking provision for lorries in Kent. The minibus in which the MPs were travelling pulled into a lay-by. The chairman of the committee, Hugh Merriman, stepped out right into a poo, which a trucker who'd been caught short had kindly left in that lay-by. The Brexit dividend there, all over Hugh Merriman's shoes. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is the aforementioned Nadine Doris, who accused Boris Johnson's critics of being attention seekers. But she didn't tell us what she'd call somebody who ate a kangaroo's penis, a camel's toe and an ostrich's anus on TV for money. She also told Channel 4 News the Prime Minister tells the truth. That was in the week of course, when the Prime Minister had admitted that he hadn't told the truth about parties in number 10, he hadn't told the truth about Keir Starmer, and now his head of policy has resigned because he doesn't tell the truth. An anagram of Nadine Doris is inane disorder, and you can't say it any better than that. But her protector will soon be gone, and so will she. And then, as Nadine Doris might as well write at the end of one of her terrible books, we will all live happily ever after. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks for listening. Thanks to my producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe, give us nice reviews and lovely ratings. Please do listen to our new podcast, The 27. Amazing, amazing, brilliant work. It's available in this podcast stream. 
And don't forget Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast. That's another one from the New European, available wherever you got this one. If you like what we do, please subscribe to The New European at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.